It's Tuesday, June 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hey, hey. Hello. Living the dream. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's start with yesterday's big news, which had to be Worldwide Developers Conference. Apple, Apple everything, Apple everywhere. Uh, were you guys paying attention? Did you did you see any big announcements, any game changers from the conference? Well, I must say I was riveted. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's the nothing that gets me excited like the words Apple and Developer Conference. Uh, and I think that's probably what the misperception on the part of the market was. There was this sort of prevailing view that there was going to be a big thing, like a product announcement or something or the like. But there are two very operant or one operant word here, and that is the word developer. Um, hmm. This is software. Um, most of what we saw here was pretty incremental. I think they were significant in the context of Apple sort of solidifying its cash generating stream. Mm-hmm. Um, with the new iOS, Yosemite, um, they are streamlining the file sharing between Apple iOS-enabled devices, and they made a move into the Internet of Things via HomeKit which I guess the hope is this is sort of like a remote control type thing, and the idea is that it will increase integration between various home devices. Um, you know, that being said, like, all I really see is this strengthens the sort of networked effect for the Apple super users already, just because, you know, it, it makes it easier to use these devices. Does it necessarily make Apple any more or less compelling as an investment to me? No. Hmm. Um, you know, in the end... Um, there is still only a very loose networked effect between these devices. Um, and so it really depends upon Apple releasing the newest, best, and prettiest device at hmm. the end of the day. Um, and, you know, they, they have astronomic margins, great returns on equity and capital. Um, and all of that depends on ma- maintaining that premium price point. Whether or not that can happen for the time, they certainly have done a great job of doing it long term. I don't know if you want to make that bet. Hmm. Jason, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, I think from a headline perspective, I think Mike keyed in on something very important here because from a headline perspective, you know, you look at this, and I'm not saying it's necessarily the right way to to view this, but I mean, consumers want gadgets, right? I mean, that's he was talking about the upgrade cycle, new phones, tablets, whatever it may be, a watch. Consumers are focused on gadgets, and I mean, the software side of this just isn't sexy. With that said, though, I mean, the software is what drives these gadgets, and so that's why this is an important um, event for Apple, and in, in, in why it's probably not going to be anything that really moves the stock price one way or the other. I mean, I saw all sorts of tweets out there yesterday: Apple up 0.7 percent after opening, Ooh. you know, oh, combo. Wow. I'm just, you know, I mean, come on, this isn't going to really move the, the needle all that much. And I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at the things that they're doing, yeah, incremental little additions, new new iterations of, of their operating system, that's all great. I think, uh, to me, I think the health kit. I think that is probably going to be uh, something they could really uh, do well with. They're mm-hmm. going to work in conjunction with Nike. You saw Nike was was you know taking the fuel band off the market because I think they realized it was just a matter of time. Yeah. You know when Apple throws out a device there like that, I mean people aren't going to buy the Nike one; they're going to buy the Apple one. So partner up with Nike, you know, integrate some of that software and some of the things that that Nike is has uh, uh, discovered from you know the, the folks that, that have used the fuel band. That'll be good. Hmm. And then I think. Uh, uh, to, to the point about the home, about the uh, about the home system, uh, what HomeKit is that what it called? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I think my my one concern there, and, and you used a good word. I think they're the Apple super user. I think that's something that's okay for maybe the Apple super user. 
But given given the popularity of of Google's Android operating system as well, I don't know how many homeowners are going to be you know want to be just completely married to that Apple ecosystem. I mean, I have an iPhone and an iPad. I, I don't have a Mac, but I mean, I wouldn't consider myself an Apple you know super user, and I also wouldn't want to have uh, my home necessarily completely Appleized either. I just don't know how attractive that is, and it's not like those. You know, platforms don't exist already. We've talked about another company out there, Control Four, that works across platforms mm-hmm. in you know integrating all sorts of different brands of those smart home devices, like Nest, for example, and in you know all sorts of lighting products and entertainment products, and and uh, you know that's an app that you can download on your iPhone from the App Store and control everything right there from your phone. So I, I don't I don't know how well that's going to work out for them, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is always going to be just that event that it doesn't it doesn't gin up much in the way of stock movement there because you know from the consumer's perspective, uh, it's it's just not that sexy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, one thing, if you wanted to go ahead and read between the lines on things sexy here, um, is the health kit announcement. I would say that 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 should tell you that Apple's very seriously considering a wearable. Um, yeah, you know and. And I, I don't really have a great sense of the extent to which there's going to be interest. Certainly, um, you know, in in my running, it seems like there are a lot of people who are much more interested in being scientific about measuring what they are doing and how they are doing it. Um, and so, you know, yet again, this is no, uh, another point of integration between the Apple devices. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that. Apple walks sort of a fine line here with this integration, and you talk about the software. That's the thing that drives everything. And what they want to do on a big-picture basis is make it so that these devices work seamlessly and almost so seamlessly that it's very hard for consumers to switch between them. They walk a very fine line there because you remember Microsoft did this a few years ago. Maybe Mm -hmm. you remember that. And there was tremendous consumer backlash surrounding that. So, you know, they want to make it hard for consumers to switch out of these things, but not too hard. Um, so, you know, th- this is just not really anything. It's sort of a non-event. If you like the Apple shares, you like them. If you don't, you don't. Um, I'd say also the security. The security aspect is probably something that people need to at least be aware of because for the longest time, you know, we talk about the fact that that most of the viruses, the the malware out there, those are attacking Windows-based and, and Android-based systems. And Apple has always kind of not been exempt from it, but just a very small percentage of those of those sorts of attacks. I mean, that's a risk I think they run genuinely because if, if you know there are attacks uh, or, or if there's malware that's developed specifically for Apple devices that continues to grow uh, and spread, I mean that's that's going to be one less really sort of uh, you know check in, in the Apple Pro Pro column there. I mean, like mm-hmm. if, if security becomes a bigger concern uh, for consumers over the course of the next five or ten years, I mean it's it's going to be one one other you know one more reason why people might say, well, maybe maybe I don't. Maybe that makes Apple look a little bit less attractive from a device perspective. WDCC continues today. Keep an eye on it. Uh, Moving right along, in regulatory news, the Environmental Protection Agency has proposed cutting carbon dioxide emissions from the existing coal plants in the United States by up to 30% by 2030. That seems like a lot. Uh, Gentlemen, what are the ramifications both for the coal industry and the industries that rely on the coal industry? You look at the train industry these days. Mm -hmm. It's it's a lot of coal moving out there. Right. What's that mean? So um, I think one thing that's worth noting in the context of this rule is it is a 30% reduction from 2005. And so there's Mm. been a pretty dramatic shift in the the extent of uh, power production by natural gas relative to coal, even from that time. 
with respect to whether or not this is good, bad, or you know, ambivalent, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's death knell for coal producers, but it certainly is not good. If you are looking at U.S.-based coal producers, you want to be looking at the low-cost producers. You want to be looking at those that are in the Illinois and the Powder River Basin. Hmm. Um, one, the two that are really most focused in those areas are Peabody and Cloud Peak Energy. Um, that being said, you know they, these guys really do face a huge sort of secular hurdle. I think the one sort of catalytic element or the thing that would, would do well on a long-term basis for these companies is U.S. exports of coal. Mm. That being said, uh, there's a lot of opposition in terms of not in my backyard and also just from a regulatory standpoint, time to build these things, so on and so forth. It's hard to really get excited about the coal producers. One thing that uh, some people might be concerned about is whether or not the coal utilities or coal-focused utilities are going to be hit by this. And I don't really think that it's as concerning as anyone would think. Um, You know, the unfortunate reality of all this is while it's probably good for us in the long run, um, the costs are going to be passed on to consumers. Mm. Um, And moreover, uh, a lot of the very large coal-focused utilities operate in regulated environments wherein if they have to reinvest in their infrastructure, they're just going to go ahead and pass those costs on. The two companies that are exposed in that regard are American Electric Power and Southern. And I don't think that that's going to be a big issue for them. The stocks are not necessarily cheap anyway, so, you know, whatever. Um, Positive for natural gas producers, obviously. A good bit of that optimism has been priced in. Um, You know, Two companies that are relatively reasonably priced, both of which I own uh, as natural gas producers, and they're very capable operators are Ultra Petroleum and Devon Energy. Devon Energy uh, has undergone something of a transformation over the course of the uh, past year, really, and now it's more oil focused, but they still retain meaningful upside sort of optionality on the natural gas end of the spectrum. Uh, so natural gas is going to do okay. What about solar? Anyone like solar out there these days? Not so much, right? Solar's solar's very tricky. I mean, I think you have to. Look, I mean, it's it's obviously been a very volatile, um, a volatile idea for really the past decade. I think you have to, you have to, you have to consider. You know, there are all sorts of options out there, and I think when you look at the economics of natural gas. Um, you know, and, and the proven capabilities of natural gas. It's not that solar isn't proven, uh, but it's also a bit more difficult to convert uh, as as effectively. Um, I mean, going back to the coal thing for a second, I think another option out there for coal uh, beyond just the the miners. And I know Mikey follows Joy Global uh, pretty closely, but that, that's that's sort of a, a picks and shovels play because they provide all the mining equipment for the coal uh, industry, and and because it's not tied. Solely to just our domestic market here. I mean that that's something that is very reliant on uh, international markets, emerging markets in China and India, where coal is going to play a major part uh, in the building out of their infrastructure. Uh, and, and Joy Global has has uh, boots on the ground in, in both countries. So so that's another way to kind of look uh, at that coal space to to focus beyond just the domestic market and look at the companies like Joy Global that, that not only do they sell that equipment, but then they continue to maintain that equipment. And so they have kind of an aftermarket segment of the business that's uh, stronger margin uh, and a little bit more reliable because they're Building in those service contracts and, and uh, you know sort of killing their customers with kindness, so to speak, and really making sure they take care of them from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the solar end of the spectrum, I think that you basically, long term, I'm, I'm sure there is indeed a market for that, and there are preliminary indications of how the economics can and will work with 
in solar projects. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway's Mid-American has been investing very aggressively in solar power. That being said, um, on an economic basis and in terms of understanding operationally how these things will work, um, there's really not adequate incentive to see a widespread adoption of this. Uh, hmm. Certain companies have proven that they can do it on a sort of distributed basis. That is very on a very, very limited scale, Solar City. Um, but, you know, I... I wouldn't necessarily be calling this the next new thing. Um, I mean, it's been the next new thing for the past decade, you could argue. Right. All right, let's bang through some earnings news. First up is Dollar General, which had a pretty good quarter. EPS beat estimates. Sales were up 6.8%. Do you guys like what you saw from Dollar General? Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about right. You know, it's sales were up 6.8%, comps up 1.5% in an admittedly difficult environment. Their core consumer is still squeezed. Mm. And you saw that in margins. Um, margins declined in on, on, on a few, uh, I guess there are a few root causes. The first is a shift to lower margin product, products, mostly consumables, uh, a more aggressive promotional environment, according to management, and weather affected traffic within the stores. And, you know, that, that kind of gets to the broader question here, which is, you know, is this competition, weather, or both? And, you know, in the context of, of the sphere within which Dollar General operates, they're a very capable operator. They've made the small store format work. They would ostensibly speaking, have room to run in terms of growing their store footprint. And the focus on smaller markets has also worked. But this is still a very, very competitive sphere. Stock is trading at, I think, about 17 times cash flow, maybe 18. Um, you know, I, I don't really get too excited about something like this. It, it might be cheap, but, um, mm. you know, when you when you ask yourself what the future looks like and understand there's a good bit of growth priced into that, I don't, I don't really get that excited about it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to Krispy Kreme, which, as Mike just mentioned, blamed bad weather for a pretty <laughs> bad first quarter. Uh, the results sent shares down like 13% yesterday. They're down, I think, last time I checked, it was another 10% today. Yeah. Jason, first and foremost, what were some highlights or, I guess, lowlights from the report for you? And where is all this weakness coming from? Highlights. Um, yeah, tough. They reported on time. I guess maybe they filed their, their <laughs> SEC filings. On time. I mean, there were, there were not a uh, there were not a lot of highlights from this from this past quarter. I mean, the problem I think with Krispy Kreme is Krispy Kreme is a very small fish in a huge pond mm. that you know really just wants a lot more than just the donuts and coffee that Krispy Kreme uh, sells. And I mean, when you compare it to uh, Dunkin' Donuts, for example, Krispy Kreme has about 855 stores world, worldwide, mm-hmm. and, and Dunkin' Donuts, for example, has uh, more than 7,500 Dunkin' stores. I mean, Starbucks is you know 17, 18,000 something worldwide. Uh, Panera, 1,700 stores. Uh, so what we're seeing, I think, here is a consumer that is no longer sort of the we, we're kind of moving away from the donuts and coffee consumer into they want. To have other options when they go to their donut and coffee store, which is why you see Dunkin' Donuts rolling out such an involved menu now. You see Starbucks trying to become more things to more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Panera obviously trying to continue to grow their footprint. And so I think that that you know Krispy Kreme is just stuck in a very very difficult position of having to compete with uh, you know some very powerful names out there that already have a tremendous scale advantage. Uh, over over what they can offer, and so I mean they're going to continue to grow that footprint. It's really easy for them to do because they franchise everything. But from a stock perspective, I mean you look at it today; it's still selling at like twenty three times full year estimates. Hmm. And, and to me, I, I just don't see the catalyst 
on the horizon there for them, regardless of whether they roll out new products, uh, change leadership, whatever they may do. And so, again, mm-hmm. kind of like Mikey was talking about Dollar General, it's just not something that really gets me very interested because I feel like there are better options out there. Right. Um, so I think the sell-off is warranted, and, and personally, I'm just you know steering clear of the stock. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think another thing to note with Krispy Kreme here is uh, much of their strategy is predicated upon uh, – them expanding the international concept and then going ahead and selling them whatever equipment is associated with that. Now, you know, just like Dollar General, where their advantage is low cost, which is not arguably speaking not sustainable when you look at some of the bigger bigger players. Mm-hmm. Um, Krispy Kreme, you have to ask yourself what their advantage is and why they're necessarily interested in to expand the international markets. Um, if you've traveled to Europe, you realize there's some pretty good cafes where you can get your sugar fix. And moreover, it's the exact same in many of the Middle Eastern countries. But those aren't mass-produced donuts <laughs> glazed in pure sugar. This yeah. is very true. This right. is very true. It's the American you know, I, way. I will well, say when we were at uh, – we flew through the Dubai airport hmm. – and it had been a while since we had had any real like American food, and it was impressive to see how crowded the Dunkin' Donuts was there, along with the Cold Stone Creamery and McDonald's. I mean, you could just you could tell the expat population because they were all at there, just those three stores, just gorging. Hmm. But um, they needed their fix. I, I think that's just oh, sort of a sad. one-off, right? I mean, that's oh. why you might have room for one or two of those stores in those markets, but really, I mean, on a, on a, on a bigger scale, it just doesn't really work. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, last but certainly not least, uh, let's take a look at some mergers and acquisitions. Last Tuesday, Pilgrim's Pride made a buyout proposal for Hillshire Farms for about $45 per share. Two days later, Tyson Foods topped that with a $50 per share bid for Hillshire. Now, Pilgrim's has upped its bid to $55 a share, making the deal worth roughly $6.7 billion. Guys, that's about Pilgrim's market cap. Yeah. What? Why? Why? <laughs> Hillshire Farms, what, what is so great about Hillshire that Pilgrim's is willing to put it all on the line for so this company? So, I'm going to say, I think, first, I think this is insane. And second, <laughs> I get the logic. Um, <laughs> you know, you So, you own more of the aisle in that, you know, and, and so in turn, you're able to get a little bit more shelf space. You can vertically integrate um, and, you know, in turn, reduce the cost of producing whatever branded goods that Hillshire does. Mm-hmm. Moreover, you know, Pilgrim's Pride, they've they've operated in this very horrible sort of cutthroat, very cyclical industry that is chicken. Um, you know, if you're to look at the historical results of chicken producers, the returns on equity are absolutely abysmal. And, you know, so this is their way of basically acquiring into a more attractive sphere, which is branded goods. Now, Hillshire has some decent, you know, I guess you could say good brands. And certainly, you know, they have distribution. They have consumer mindshare. These are not particularly crowded uh, areas. Um, And so, you know, basically Pilgrim's finds a place for its chicken and also gets into some brands that are a little bit more attractive in terms of their ability to to consistently generate returns on investment. Um, You know, but but the price is just insane. Um, They're paying 13 times EBITDA. and so, you know, and, and let's bear in mind, Hillshire has really only generated great returns on capital for maybe two of the past several years. I was looking before we came in here. So, you know, I see the strategic merit as somebody who's followed the chicken industry. <laughs> I know. Who doesn't follow the chicken uh, you're, industry? You're excited um, <laughs> for several years, but I just, the price is ridiculous. Yeah, it kind of reeks of desperation. I mean, they want to spread that risk out. and sort of steer themselves away from just that 100% chicken risk. 
but but man, I mean, you get into a situation you know, like you go buy a home and you've got a buyer and a seller. I mean, you you never want to be in the position where you're a desperate seller, right? Mm. I mean, I think it's it's safe to say that Hillshire probably sees themselves as as kind of holding uh, holding the uh, the leg up in this transaction now because it appears that Pilgrim's Pride is a bit more of a of a desperate buyer, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I mean, shareholders of Hillshire should be feeling pretty good about yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, if I if I'm a Hillshire shareholder right now, I'm pretty happy about this because oh, something on order of sixty yeah. percent in shareholder value or in share price appreciation has been created virtually overnight. And I got to be honest, I don't think that Hillshire shares can justify that premium on a standalone basis. Ah, it's <laughs> Jimmy Dean's sausage, man. I mean, come on, you know it's. Hillshire, go beef. Powerful name. Yeah, good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Jason Moser, Michael Olson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Cheers. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Five Miler Machine and Henry. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) 